Amen. Be seated. Let's pray. Your word, O Lord, is perfect, reviving the soul. And so we pray as we come to expound your word this morning, it gives us that hope that we just sang about that you would teach us and give us understanding. You would incline our hearts to it. That you would confirm your promises to us in it. And that you would give us life according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Revelation chapter 21, as we've seen over the past several weeks in this series that we've been doing, the series God with Us, the story of the Bible began with God creating a world in which He would dwell in a perfect relationship with His people. And that perfect relationship shattered by human rebellion against God. So humanity was cast out, cut off from the presence of God. The life-giving, joy-bringing fellowship that they enjoyed with Him. And the, the story of the Bible continues over the course of thousands of years as God works to bring about His plan to redeem a people for His own possession, that He might be their God, that they might be His people, and that He might dwell among them again. And that story comes to a dramatic climax when God wraps himself in human flesh and comes to dwell among us in Jesus and does so in order to do what is necessary to deal with our sin, the sin that cuts us off from God's presence so that we might again be welcomed into that glorious presence with the eternal life and joy that comes with it. We saw how through Jesus that eternal life is opened to us through his death and resurrection and that though Jesus now has ascended into heaven, he continues to be present with us through his spirit who now dwells in us, the church, the temple of the Holy Spirit built upon Christ, the cornerstone. But this is not the end of the story. The Bible is moving toward an even greater goal. See, while we experience true fellowship with God now, it is not yet the, the full, unhindered, immediate, face-to-face -face relationship that we were created for. And while we can experience true joy in the Lord now, it is not yet the fullness of joy of which David speaks in Psalm 16 when he says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. And while we have been truly reconciled to God by the death of His Son, our redemption, while assured, is not yet complete. And so along with all creation, we await that final act of this biblical drama to unfold. But we're not uncertain about what that act holds. We know the author, and because we know the author, we know the end. 
And the end looks a lot like the beginning, only better. The story of the Bible began with God creating heaven and earth, a place in which he would dwell in that perfect relationship with his people, those who had been made in his image, made for his presence. And the story of the Bible ends with God creating a new heaven and a new earth, a place in which he would dwell with his people, those who have been redeemed by his Son and made alive by his Spirit to enjoy his eternal presence. We find the end of this story in Revelation 21 and 22. And this is, I would argue, the biblical equivalent of standing on top of Mount Everest. This is the summit of the whole Bible. It does not get any higher or more exalted or more glorious than this. And here we we find the goal toward which everything in the Bible from Genesis onward, has been moving. The culmination of of all of God's promises and purposes beginning in Eden. As we consider these chapters to close our series on this central storyline of the Bible, the story of God with us, I want to consider first this morning what the end of the story shows us about our future. And then second, what the end of the story offers us in the present. So first, what the end of the story shows us about our future, and as you might expect, it has everything to do with the presence of God. We come to Revelation 21, the end of a series of visions that God has given the Apostle John that have culminated with the return of Christ his victory over all his enemies, the final judgment of the living and the dead. God tells John, I'm going to give you this vision in order that my servants must know what must take place soon after this. He wants his people to know what is coming in the end, that it might give them confidence despite whatever struggles they endure in this life. John sees these visions, he sees Christ Return, he sees the final judgment, and now we get John's concluding vision in which God shows him what we call the eternal state, the the new heaven and new earth, the forever future of God's people. Uh, The opening verses of chapter 21 are sort of like an executive summary of this vision, and then afterward John goes into greater detail about what he sees, but we'll begin with verse 1. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Without going into great detail on this, I'll tell you, I I take the new heaven and the new earth, to basically be synonymous with the holy city, the new Jerusalem. I think they're describing the same reality. What John sees is the new creation. The normal pattern in Revelation is that John sees something, a vision, and then he hears something, an explanation of that vision. That's what we have here. 
It says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Okay. So what's significant about that? Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. So this is the divine explanation of what he is seeing in the vision. What does he hear? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That word dwelling place is used only a handful of times in the New Testament. And strikingly, the only place outside of Revelation where it is used is John 1.14, where we read that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The first thing that God says as He displays this vision of the new heavens and new earth, the emphatic headline of this announcement is that the dwelling place of God is with man, that He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. That's the covenant language we've seen throughout our our story of the Bible, the, the promise that God was going to redeem this people, that He might dwell among them. And here, that promise, which is repeated throughout the Old Testament over and over again, and which is pledged to us in the new covenant that is established in Christ's blood, here, that covenant promise comes to full and final fulfillment. Just as He promised, God will dwell once more with His people in the place made for His presence. And that's not just sort of a side note in the conclusion to the story. That's the the emphasis. It's what the whole story has been moving towards. In fact, Graham Goldsworthy, who is a, a biblical theologian, said it this way. This verse could be said to sum up and to contain the entire message of the Bible. The whole of the history of the covenant and of redemption is woven into this one simple yet profound statement, the dwelling of God is with men. Beginning in verse 9, then, if we skip down a little bit, John begins to go into greater detail about what he saw and heard in these opening verses. And he describes first the the new heaven and the new earth that have been created by God, and then he declares that in that place we will enjoy full and eternal communion with God. So John describes first what he sees of this new heaven and new earth that that will be created by God. We look at verse 9. John says that in his vision, an angel carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. There are pretty significant echoes of Ezekiel's vision here. If you think back a few weeks to when we looked at the end of the book of Ezekiel, like Ezekiel, John is taken in the Spirit to a high mountain and shown a magnificent city. And this city, John says, has the glory of God. 
and its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper. And both of those descriptions are important to John's point. The glory of God is the unspeakably brilliant manifestation of God's holy presence. You might remember that the glory of God came to dwell in the most holy place, in the tabernacle, and then in the temple, and it departed the temple because of Israel's idolatry. But in his vision, Ezekiel saw that the glory of God would return to a new temple along with the promise that God would return to dwell among his people. And even more than that, even more than the glory of God returning to a new temple, the prophets also foresaw a day when the earth would be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And John sees the ultimate fulfillment of Ezekiel's vision, the glory of God, God's very presence comes again to dwell with His people in the new creation. John also describes the city as having the radiance of a jasper, which may not seem like it's saying anything other than just it was really beautiful, which is certainly true. The only other place previous to this where something is described as having the appearance of a jasper is in Revelation 4. John uses the same language to describe not the appearance of a city or a place, but the appearance of the one who is seated on the throne. This city, this new creation, radiates with glorious brightness and brilliance, not because it's just made of precious materials, but because the presence of God is there. And John continues to describe the appearance of the city, and in verse 16 he says that the city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width, and the, the angel measured the city with his rod, and it's the same thing that happens in the book of Ezekiel, he measures the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. Now don't worry so much about the size of the city. Instead, focus on its shape. It's a perfect cube. And the only other place we see something like this in Scripture is the shape of the most holy place in the tabernacle and the temple. Both were to be perfect cubes. This new city, this new creation is itself, in its entirety, the most holy place, the place where God dwells. Like Eden, the whole of this new creation is a temple of God's glorious presence, which then explains why we read in verse 22 that John saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And so unlike Ezekiel's vision of a massive temple in this city, John sees no temple. Perhaps to put it differently, John sees more, more clearly than Ezekiel saw. He sees that the whole of the new creation is the new temple. There's not a special place in which God's glory is manifested in a veiled localized manner. Now the whole earth is filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so we read in verse 23 that the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. The glory of God fills this place just like the glory of God filled 
Eden, later filled the tabernacle, and the temple. So the new heaven and the new earth are filled with the glory of God's presence. But it gets better. Chapter 22 and verse 1. And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Again, this is almost identical to what Ezekiel saw in his vision. And if we go back further, it's what we saw in Eden, a river of life flowing out from the place of God's dwelling, and at the center, the tree of life. What had been in Eden and what Ezekiel saw in his vision now becomes a reality, the tree of life, the way to which had been barred to humanity after the fall, showing their separation from the presence of God and the life that dwelling in His presence brings, that way is no longer off limits. Those who dwell in the city do not need to pass under God's judgment, but they have free access to it. They have free access to the water of the river of life, symbolic of the eternal life that they enjoy in God's presence. Verse 3, No longer will there be anything accursed. The curse is ended. The consequences of sin that have plagued creation since the fall are finally and forever done away with. Sin and death are no more. God's people now fully sanctified and glorified by His Spirit are once again allowed into the place of God's presence. Even this is not the end though. Because God's purpose through the Bible has not just been to make all things new for His own glory. It's not just been to undo the curse, but it's been to redeem a people for His own possession that He might be their God and that they might be His people and that He might dwell among them forever. And so this account of the new creation that John sees sets the stage for the summit of the biblical story. This vision is not just about what the new creation will be like, a paradise, but just like the story of the first creation in Genesis, the real apex of the story is not found in the creation of this place, but in what is to happen in this place. Who is to dwell there? Chapter 22, verse 3, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. Verse 4 They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. This is for me the most glorious verse in the whole Bible. This is the peak. The throne of God is there, God dwelling in the midst of his people, and they will see. His face. No longer do they hide themselves from God's presence like Adam and Eve did in the garden. The glorious purpose for which God's people were created and redeemed in Christ is realized. Perfect, perpetual fellowship with and in God's presence. 
Even Moses, whose intimacy with God was, was unsurpassed, was not allowed to see God's face. God had told him, no one can see my face and live. And yet here, John says, we will see his face. And his name will be on our foreheads. We will be marked as belonging to him. This is what theologians call the summum bonum, the highest good, the greatest gift of the gospel. It's the promise of God's unveiled, unhindered, unmediated, eternal presence with us. It's the goal to which everything in the Bible has moving, been moving towards, this renewed, unbroken, and eternally unbreakable communion, fellowship, relationship with God. God created us for His presence. He redeemed us that we might dwell with Him and He with us, that we might see His glory and that we might be His people. And in the end, John says, this is exactly what will happen. Verse 5, And night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is not a temporary arrangement. This is eternal blessedness. This surpasses the relationship enjoyed by Adam and Eve at creation because the story of the Bible has not just been about getting back to what we had in the garden. What we see in Revelation 21 and 22 is not a return to pre-fall, pre-sin conditions of creation. We won't just be restored to a state of innocence in which we are not guilty, but could again become guilty if we sin. Adam and Eve were innocent, but they had the ability to sin, clearly. But here... No, having been justified and sanctified and glorified in Christ, we will no longer be able to sin. We will eat of the tree of life and drink of the water of life and so live forever in the glorious presence of God where there is fullness of joy. However we slice it, the emphasis of what we see in John's vision is what God said in chapter 21, verse 3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. It's the most important thing we need to know about what eternity is like. And that might actually go against some of the way that we tend to think about the future. We're very concerned about what heaven will be like. What will we get to do there? Will my favorite food be there? Will I get to watch football? Maybe more seriously, we tend to think more about eternity in terms of release from the challenging and painful circumstances that we are surrounded by and experience. Sickness, sorrow, pain, death. We think in terms of freedom from our own sinfulness. Or we think about freedom from others' sinfulness. 
We think in terms of being freed from the consequences of the curse. We think about seeing loved ones who have died in the Lord. And of course, all of these things are good and desirable, but one of the things that sticks out in this passage as we survey the the whole Bible from its highest peak is that freedom from the curse and its effects is not our highest good, nor should it be our greatest desire and hope. The greatest gift of the gospel is not primarily what we are freed from, nor is it all of the incredible blessings that the gospel brings, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life and justification and sanctification and adoption. These are all gifts of God's grace and they're ours through faith alone and Christ alone, no doubt. But the greatest gift of the gospel, the very heart of the story of the Bible, is the promise of the presence of God. Think again about this passage. Did you notice how much John describes the new heavens and the new earth in terms of what is absent? No death, no mourning, no crying, no pain, no temple, no need of sun or moon, no night, no closed gates, nothing unclean, no sin, no curse. He seemed to know more about this, what this place will not be like than what it will be like. But don't miss this. There's a reason why all of these things are absent. The only reason any of these things are absent is because of who is present. Everything good about this place is good because God is there. Everything in this passage, all the threads that are picked up from across the entirety of the Bible, all the descriptions of John's vision of the new heavens and the new earth, everything points to this one central truth, that the most important thing about this future, your future, if you are a Christian, is that God is there. And in His presence there is fullness of joy, and Christian, you will see His face. This is what God has promised in His Word, and it's more certain to be fulfilled than that the sun will rise in the east tomorrow. That's what the end of the story shows us about our future. What does the end of this story offer us now in the present? Many things we could reflect on here, but I want to highlight just two. Uh, a gentle challenge and an open invitation. First, the end of the story of God with us offers us a gentle challenge. We've already touched on it a bit. What would you consider to be the highest good that you could experience? Or perhaps what do you most desire about the new heaven and the new earth? When you read Revelation 22, 3, and 4, what stands out to you more? That there will be nothing accursed or that we will see his face? Do you more eagerly anticipate what won't be there? Sin, sickness, sorrow, pain, death. Then you do what will be there, the presence of God. Or think of it this way, if I could promise you that everything you ever wanted would be in the new heavens and the new earth forever 
but Jesus wouldn't be there, would you be satisfied? A passage like this is not meant only to serve as a solid foundation for our hope, but it also serves to reorient our lives around what our hope truly is or truly should be. It's not just the absence of suffering or sin or struggle, nor is it just the presence of various blessings. It's beholding God. In the gospel, God doesn't simply offer us stuff. He offers us himself. Jesus gave himself for us that he might give himself to us. And if we're more interested in all the things or the people that won't be there or that will be there, than we are about the personal presence of God, then we may need to confess that we have become more enamored with the gifts than the giver. Maybe think of it like this. Uh, I pray that my children come to receive and rest upon Christ alone as he's offered in the gospel for their salvation and eternal life. And I pray that, Lord willing, many years from now when I am old and full of days and I depart to be with Christ, that they're saddened because they love me. Pray that they grieve, not as those who have no hope, but grieve as those who have hope in the sure and certain resurrection of the dead. I hope that they look forward to seeing me again in that city whose designer and builder is God, that city with foundations, the new heaven and the new earth. But I hope that they are more eager, that they long more to see Jesus than me. Because seeing me is not their highest good. Beholding him is. The end of the story of God with us challenges us on how we think about the future and also challenges us on what we prioritize in the present. If the greatest good of our future will be beholding the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ, then it would be appropriate for us to acquaint ourselves well with him now. While we have to wait until he comes again and makes all things new to enjoy his unmediated, unhindered presence, we can enjoy true communion with him now. And that doesn't mean that you need to lock yourself in a monastery and do nothing but pray and read the Bible. In fact, I would generally advise against that. But it does mean that you should consider how well you are acquainted with Jesus and where the, the cultivation of that most important of all relationships is on your list of theoretical priorities and actual practices. And I'll tell you that even as a pastor, one who is ostensibly paid to have a relationship with Jesus, it is literally in my job description that this was convicting for me this week. We all have room to grow in this. So the end of this story of God with us offers us gentle challenge, both in how we think about the future and in light of that, how we prioritize in the present. And then second, the end of this story also offers us, and to all who will listen, 
an open invitation. As extraordinary as this promised future is, it is clear in the Bible that not everyone will experience the joy and blessedness of eternal life in God's presence. In these chapters, we read about those who remain outside the city and will never enter it. It is only those, John says, who are written in the Lamb's book of life who enter. It is only those, we read later in chapter 22, who wash their robes that have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by its gates. It is only those, we're told earlier in Revelation 7, who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, who will be before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits in the throne will shelter them with His presence. If you're a follower of Jesus, the Bible says that that, that is your future. But for those who are not washed and justified and sanctified by the Lord Jesus, the Bible says that their exile from the life-giving presence of God will continue forever. Their portion is not eternal life, but eternal death. They will experience God's presence, but only as an avenging judge. And John hears their terrifying sentence read in Revelation 14 that they will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger and will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is what the Bible says about the eternity that awaits you. But God is rich in mercy. And he offers to you, to all, even to the the foremost of sinners, forgiveness and life and salvation. And we read it at Revelation 21.7. He says, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And then again, Revelation 22.17, he says, let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Friends, God offers you the eternal life and joy of His presence, and He does so freely. All that is necessary has been done by Jesus, purchased by His blood, shed on the cross, secured by His resurrection from the dead, so that you may take of this offer without payment and without price. But you must recognize that you're thirsty, and that you could only be satisfied by the presence of God, the living water that only Jesus can give. You were made for His presence, and His presence alone can give you life. And the sole qualification, the only requirement for you to come and to take freely of that life is to recognize that you need it, that you need Him, and that He and He alone can give what you need. Jesus himself said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. So come and entrust yourself to the Lord Jesus. He who is God with us and will be God with us forever. And you will have life in his name now and in the future, fullness of joy 
in his presence. Let's pray. Oh God, we give you thanks that from eternity past, you have purposed to redeem a people for your own possession, to make all things new for your glory, to dwell with us, to bless us in your presence, to give us life. Oh God, we pray as we look with longing on that future that we would that we would long not just for the things that you give or the things that you remove, but for you. Teach, teach us, teach our hearts to long for you. In your presence there is fullness of joy. So help us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.